Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word um, this morning. Lord, we believe it to be eternal and true. And I pray right now, just as you um, guide us in it, we recognize that your spirit is here. He's active and among us. Um, Lord, and I pray that he would take this word um, and he would write it on our hearts. Lord, we ask this morning that we would be shaped by your word and that we would um, be the type of people who live our lives in accordance with it. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all you've given us, all you've done for us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, some of you may know that when I was in college, one of the jobs that I did um, was as a school bus driver. It's actually how my wife and I met. We were both school bus drivers. And um, during that time, I'm really grateful for my time as a school bus driver. I like to think it made me a fantastic driver, okay? I don't know if everybody would agree with that or not, but um, one, of the, one of the things during training that I remember is they would, they would sort of have a lesson on getting the big picture, and the idea was simple, that as you're driving around on the school bus, you were supposed to sort of scan and see the whole picture, right? We all understand that oftentimes when you're driving, you are not just driving for yourself, but if you're a good driver, you also have to sort of drive for those who share the street with you as well when they're not doing a good job, right? So you gotta sort of, as a bus driver, you're sort of scanning, you're keeping your focus ahead, but you're also getting the big picture. You're seeing hazards, you're seeing drivers who are making mistakes, you're just seeing the whole deal. Okay? And I like to think that that lesson made me a, a decent driver in general. One of the things it also taught me was um, to just sort of be patient as a driver, to be patient. When you're on the street, there are other people that are out there. You're sharing the road with many people, and a lot of times people are making mistakes. They're not getting the big picture. They're not looking at what they're doing. And, and if you're a good driver, you can sort of just be patient with others. And I like to think as a driver from time to time, I can be sort of patient. There is one time when I'm driving where my patience is tested. I mean, there's, there's a, several times, but there's one in, just in particular. And that is when other drivers do not extend the same patience and understanding towards me as I do towards them. I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but, you know, if somebody is, if I'm driving and somebody forgets the signal and they kind of cut me off, I'm thinking, hey, come on, that's all right. Come on over. I got you. It's okay. But if I do that to somebody and then they get mad at me, well, then my patience is really tested. I don't know if you can relate or not. I think driving is often a time, just traffic in general, is a time when our patience can be tested. There are lots of times in life when our patience, when we can sort of be pushed in patience, whether it's in traffic or maybe it's at work with someone who, who go, sort of goes out of their way to make your job or your day difficult. You feel, maybe your patience is tested and you feel maybe the urge to strike back. Or maybe it's in your neighborhood where you live. Maybe there is somebody, a neighbor specifically, who just really gets on your nerves. Perhaps, students, it's at school. Maybe there is a classmate, maybe there's another student who can say cruel or hurtful things, who can make you want to return the favor. Someone who hurts you intentionally or unintentionally, you feel sort of uncontrollable urge to strike back. Maybe you've felt this before. As James brings his letter to a close, he does what he's been doing all along. He gets incredibly practical. And he zooms in on an area of life that the truth is every single person in this room can relate to in one way or another. 
He provides for us. In those moments where our patience is tested and where we feel an urge to strike back when we've been mistreated, he provides for us an alternative, another way to deal with mistreatment or misunderstanding. He answers the question for us, how can I do right when I have been done wrong? That's what he answers for us here. As we look at this passage in chapter five, verses seven to 12, I think the big idea that James is putting for us this morning is that real faith produces real patience. Real faith produces real patience. This is a message that his audience needed to be reminded of in the face of significant challenges. He, he tells them to be patient in the light of the Lord's coming. He goes on to provide real help for suffering people like you and like me. And out of his just kindness, not only does he say that we must wait, that we must be patient, he also shows us how? So as you look at these verses, sort of three things I want to point out. The first thing is we're going to look at the exhortation from James to us to be patient. Secondly, the motivation to be patient. And third, the application of patience. So first, let's look at the exhortation, the simple command, the command to be patient. You see it right there in verse 7. Look down at your text. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, Brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You see it repeated again in verse eight. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. As he marches on through these verses, he provides three sort of different examples. He, he points to the patience of the farmer. He, he looks at the patience of the prophets and he considers the patience of Job. And he uses these examples to show us how as God's people, just like them, we too are to be patient. This theme of patience will continue on through the rest of the chapter as he brings this letter to a close. It, it is the faith-inspired response he shows us to a variety of life's circumstances, whether facing suffering or sickness or, or how you treat with or deal with those who have strayed in sin. The Christian is supposed to be patient. That's the command. Now, if you just consider the context of James, the audience, the individuals that he's writing to, you'll understand the need for patience, the need for patience. His, his focus, he's, he's writing to people who he mentioned previously in verse four as laborers who, though they worked, their wages remained unpaid. Remember the context what we learned last week in verse seven, though they, they, they've remained uh, righteous, their lives are, are ruined and oppressed. We saw this in the previous section. The audience of his letter is experiencing, it's clear, a unique season of suffering. These are a people who have been uniquely taken advantage of and mistreated by others. And while their circumstances are difficult and their lives are marked with a unique sort of suffering as a result of their oppression, James commands them to resist the urge to do what is likely just natural and resort to violence, but rather embrace a life of patience in the face 
of hardship and difficulty. The call for patience, it is the direct application of what has come before. Because the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord, God's people, even in the midst of great hardship, shall remain patient. It's such a helpful word, given the circumstances that God's people have found themselves in. And it, and it needs to be said. God's people needed to be reminded over and over and over again to remain steadfast and to be patient. Times of injustice or suffering at the hands of others, is, it's often, if you're experiencing those, natural to find yourself wondering, does God hear me? As you consider your unique sufferings and difficulties, maybe finding yourself crying out to God over and over and over again in face of difficulty, you might find yourself asking the same question. Is God listening? Does God hear me? Will he do anything? James answers those questions emphatically and confidently. He does hear you and he will do something. And what's needed for you in the meantime is patience. Patience. Now, consider with me for a second just the nature of patience. There's all different types of waiting. Many of us have found ourselves waiting for something. Considering this type of waiting. Maybe you have recently applied, filled an application, maybe for a, a program at a prestigious university. Qualified, fill out the application, you do the work, you send it off, and now sort of the decision lies in the hands of the decision makers. And they will look at your application, they'll you know, maybe send a letter back in response whether or not you've been admitted into this program or not. But meanwhile, after you've done the work of applying, it's sort of in their hands and all you can do is, is simply wait. Just wait, wait to hear back. In the meantime, you sort of just have to go about getting on with just day-to-day -day life. There's nothing you can do to sort of change the decision at that point. You just simply wait and you go about your, your life as you do so. That's one way of waiting. Now, let me give you a different sort of idea or way to wait. Let's imagine in the middle of a hot Iowa summer, you come home from work to discover the unthinkable. Your air conditioning unit is no longer working. Maybe some of you can relate to this unfortunate discovery. And then, so what you do what any normal person would do. You get on the phone, you call the repairman, you say, come down, my, you know, check out my, my, my unit, what's going on here? They come down, they look, they do a little diag diagnostic test, and they discover, hey, you've got a part, I don't know what it would be, of your unit that's broken, and it needs to be replaced. And so, unfortunately, this part is hard to come by. Maybe you guys, I can't imagine anybody's heard this before. But that part is hard to come by, and it's going to be at least two weeks before you will be delivered from the heat and the oppression of it. And so you wait, but your waiting looks different. Your waiting looks different, doesn't it? Because what you would do, if you were like me, you would begin to open the windows of the house you would find fans in the basement or attic. You would bring them out. You would plug them in. You would do whatever you could do to cool the house down. And then when the repairman can arrive to be there, you would 
clear your calendar. You would do whatever you have to do to make sure that you are there when he or she is there so that your AC can get turned back on, right? See, in that example, your waiting shapes the way that you live. It impacts your activity, right? It forces you to look ahead to a certain moment when somebody will come and you will do whatever it takes to ensure that you are ready for their arrival. As you can probably tell, that's precisely the type of waiting that James is calling us to. That's the type of waiting. Your life looks different based on who's coming and when they'll get there. Your life looks different. James is telling us this is the type of waiting that we are supposed to look like. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. James is speaking to Christians and he understands that when we face difficulty, suffering, a common temptation can be for us to cry out, how long, O Lord? Why me? Oh, Lord, and questions like these can be addressed by simply being reminded of who Jesus is and where Jesus is, who he is and where he is. Five times in the section, James refers to him as Lord, which is a simple way of reminding us that the the one we are waiting for is in absolute control of everything. He is Lord over everything, surprised by nothing and able to fix anything. That's who we're waiting for. And the good news of the gospel is that that God made this place. He made this world and he he made us and, and while he made it, we broke it and Jesus is the one ultimately who fixes it. And in his, fixes, his fixing kind of comes in two stages. He first came to deal with sin and, and the penalty of sin. And he's coming again to make all things right, all things new when he comes as judge a second time. And until then, we live, you and me, in this world with the consequences, the effects, the reality of sin and brokenness in relationships, brokenness in politics, in our city, in our workplace, in our homes. Everywhere we turn, we, turn, we see the effects of sin. Notice he goes on in verse 9 to say that Jesus is standing at the door. That's where he is, standing at the door. I love how one author put it. He says that while he may not physically be in the midst while you are enduring suffering and difficulty, at any moment the door is about to swing open the door of world history is about to swing on its hinges and you will be standing face to face with the judge of all the earth the one who has the ability to make all things right not sure what pain or suffering might look like for you but I hope you see what James is doing here He's pulling up a chair right alongside of you. He's extending his arm over your shoulder and reminding you who Jesus is and where he is. Right now, right now, knowing that these two things, our belief 
in these two things, that Jesus has not gone AWOL, that he has not abandoned me in my difficulty, but rather he is right here. His, his presence in our midst would provide for you the type of assurance you need so you can patiently wait. That's the exhortation. Secondly, he gives us a motivation to be patient. Essentially, he points out several examples so that we can learn sort of what this patience looks like. The first thing he points us to is that of a farmer. Now, for James's audience in this day, this would have been an example that they all would have easily been able to relate to. Farming was woven into the fabric of life. His listeners would have had a high degree of familiarity with what this type of life looked like. Look what he says here. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. For this part of the world, rains would have happened sort of two times throughout the year in October and November and again in March and April. And in between these times, the, the work of the farmer looked like preparing the ground, planting the seed, keeping the weeds at bay. And outside of that, there really wasn't anything the farmer could do to sort of hurry along the crop or, or, or allow growth to happen sort of on his time frame. All he could do was wait. The rains would eventually come, and with them the harvest. His job was to simply do the work and wait patiently. And what, what kept him waiting? Well, he had sort of confidence, for one, the, the patience was the direct result of the confidence that they had in God, that God would bring the rains. The, the regular rains, in fact, were seen by God in the Old Testament, by God's people in the Old Testament, as a regular expression of God's faithfulness to providing for his people. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 11. The rains will come, and, and you're planting the seeds in the ground, waiting for them was a demonstration of your confidence that God would deliver on his promise. But secondly, you'll also see that there was a unique longing that this farmer had for those crops. Notice the word that's used to describe the fruit of the earth. It's called precious. Precious. What kept the farmer waiting for the harvest was the fact that the farmer saw the harvest as precious. As precious. It, it cost, it had significant value and it was close to the farmer's heart. And these two realities caused the farmer to wait patiently. I think as we consider what it looks like to wait as Christians in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, it requires two things for us as well. Confidence that the Lord will deliver on his word, and secondly, a longing and affection. Seeing Jesus in his coming as being precious to us. If you think to yourself, you find yourself impatient with maybe your life and the suffering that maybe following Jesus brings, what the Lord wants you to know is, one, you can be confident. He will arrive. And when he does, he will set things right. And secondly, you should find Jesus and, and who he is and all that he has done. And as he offers himself to you as a precious gift, one that you long for, that will make waiting patiently easier points to another couple of examples. Now, the next two examples are unique in the sense that they are real people. 
He shows that, I think part of the reason why James does this is he shows that as you are waiting for the Lord, you are not alone. What you are experiencing, the suffering, the difficulty, the hardship of just following after Jesus, living the way that the Lord has marked out for you, while it brings one challenge after another, the temptation might be to look at hardship and suffering that comes into your life and to think to yourself, I'm a total weirdo. This is not God's plan. I'm doing something wrong. But instead, James strategically, and I think intentionally, points back and says, consider these two groups of people, the prophets and Job. Real people who likewise endured suffering. If you see challenge, adversity, or difficulty enter into your life because you are determined to do things the Lord's way, it's not an indication that you are weird. Rather, it's an indication that you are normal, that you're normal. And I think that's why James points these out. You know, I think of, you know, sort of recently I took my boys on a trip up to the Boundary Waters, and if you've been to the Boundary Waters, you know that um, there's lots of challenge, it's beautiful, but there's difficulty as well. One of the things that we had to sort of figure out is as you canoe across a lake, you would have to do this thing they call portage. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but you get out of your canoe and whatever you're packing in your canoe and you have to, you know, the boundary waters are, you know, a bunch of scattered, I don't know if it's lakes that's broken up by land or land that's broken up by lakes, but it's just that, all right? And so you, you canoe across, you know, one section of water and then you can't get out. So you gotta, you gotta go to a portage where you take, get out of the canoe, take all your stuff out and then you walk across, you know, like ground and you go to the, take your canoe and all your stuff to the other side so that you go back in the water and continue on, right? Well, there is a trail that others have sort of beaten down because they do the exact same thing. And as you're, as you're getting out of your canoe and you're, you're hoisting this, big canoe on your shoulders, it's not easy, it's hard, okay? But one of the things that keeps you going is as you're walking down the trail, you can remember that this trail exists for a reason. The reason it exists is because others have marched this path before me. And what you are doing is possible. Yeah, it's hard, it's difficult, it's zero fun. But it's possible. And as James recounts to us the life of the prophets, the life of the servant Job, what he's reminding us is that while the path that God has you on is difficult, he's not asking anything of you that he hasn't asked of others before. That the path you're enduring, the suffering, the difficulty you're enduring, it is possible. He says, consider the prophets. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James calls to mind the prophets of old. Certainly, he could have pointed to any number of individuals in the Old Testament who endured suffering, but he mentions specifically the prophets. These are individuals whose suffering sort of just came with the territory. Their job was to speak, he says, in the name of the Lord. And this meant calling out sin and injustice just as they saw it, exposing people for how they were living. For some prophets, it meant challenging the king himself. And as you can imagine, often their message was not received with warm fuzzies and open arms, but rather, it was resisted. It came with a cost. 
And because they were faithful to what God had called them to do, they faced unique trials and persecutions. Think of Jeremiah, for example, who had a unique message of judgment as God's people faced captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. His family turned his back on him. He was beaten and put in stocks. He was imprisoned by the king, threatened with death, thrown in a cistern. Let's just say things didn't go well while he remained faithful. Yet he remained faithful, God, in his calling to proclaim the word of God to the people of God, no matter what it cost him. And this is an example, he says. James wants his listeners to follow. You've got a job to do, no matter what the cost is, and there is a unique way that you're supposed to live, no matter the difficulty of the hardship, or hardship that it brings. Consider the prophets and how they patiently waited. So too should you. Then he points in verse 11 to his servant Job. Behold, look at verse 11, as we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And have you seen the purpose of the Lord? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the final example he gives. Here's a man who we know, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, the story of Job, essentially lost it all. He endured one blow after another, and they weren't small blows, they were big ones. His possessions, his family, his health, even his friends, as they attempted to provide comfort, they make things worse. They add to his list of woes. Yet through it all, in the face of great adversity, tremendous suffering, Job endured it all. He didn't turn his back on God, but remained faithful. In the book, you see evidences of his faithfulness, verse after verse. Look at, consider Job 19, 25, and 27. Listen to his response. For I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. For my eyes shall behold and not another. Job, though he complained bitterly at times, through all of his sufferings, he refused to curse God. His faith, though at times appeared weak and fragile, proved true. James reminds us that the sufferings of Job, though very real, they were also very temporary. He was not defined by those sufferings. They weren't the end of Job's story. They eventually gave way to an abundance of blessing that reflected the compassion and the mercy of God himself. His situation, his life was transformed. The the point that James wants his readers, wants us to understand, to walk away with is that Job persevered in the face of difficulty. And God in his compassion and mercy blessed him. We can experience that same blessing, that same compassion and mercy if we, like Job, press on in our faith and patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. The good news for us this morning is this same God is still full of compassion and still full of mercy And he loves to share those things with you and me. Finally, look at the application of this patience. I will say sort of in studying this text that this is, I think there's multiple applications that you can pull out of this, but 
just kind of zero in on one. And I think it's a surprising application when you first look at it. You know, we know that as we've studied um, the book of James, that one of the things that he's pointed out is the power of speech, power of the tongue. Like a bit, we saw this earlier, in, in a horse's mouth or a rudder on a ship, the tongue determines really the direction of one person's whole life. Like a little spark in a forest, it can set an entire life ablaze with unrighteousness. It's interesting that as James sort of brings his letter to a close, he, he looks back at that same theme, the theme of speech or our tongue. Two times in his exhortation towards patience, James pauses to remind his readers yet again of the importance of their speech. Both sort of these direct applications have to do with the tongue. Look verse, at verse nine. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble against one another. It's easy to see why James' original readers, just considering sort of the context, would be tempted towards grumbling or complaining. You know, these are people who maybe, imagine, put yourself in their situation. A boss defrauds you of your week's wages and then has the audacity to show up at church on Sunday. You see that individual sitting there. You would, if you were just a normal person, have a temptation to let others know how bogus that dude was. <laughs> right? You could see how tempting it would be to spend your day after church complaining about that individual to others. I think most of us get the connection here when circumstances try our patience. When we feel mistreated or misunderstood, discouraged in life, frustrated by circumstances or external pressures, the reality is we are tempted to complain, verse nine specifically, to one another. We would find ourselves, again, if we're just normal, frustrated with our circumstances, enduring suffering, wanting to turn to our brother and sister and to begin to grumble and to complain. And James says, godly patience does not do that. Godly patience does not grumble, does not complain, actively resist the temptation to do that. You, he says, on the other hand, because maybe that's how the world would operate, but you trust in God to sort things out and guard your tongue along the way. It's an interesting application, but I think it's one that, quite honestly, we've all been there before. We can relate to on some level. And he goes on to sort of reinforce this in another way in verse 12. He says at the end of the section, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. We all know 
the terrible cost of lies. I was talking recently with a cousin of mine who loves fishing and he was talking about somebody else who he goes fishing with on a regular basis and he's just like, the guy just lies constantly about the fish he catches, the size of them, the quantity of them, where he catches them. He's like, it's just so frustrating. I don't wanna fish with them anymore because everything that comes out of his mouth is just a lie, just a lie. We, we all know, we have all know that, that lying can have serious consequences in our life. They can do tremendous damage. We see it in public sphere. We watch the downfall of careers and the destruction of reputations. Or even closer to home, we see families unravel, relationships fall apart. Lies can easily destroy lives. But God has always wanted his people to be different. He always has. Very simply, he wants his people to mean what they say and to say what they mean. You know, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had departed so far from God's plan. They had developed a very elaborate system of oaths, a system where only some were binding and others were not. Jesus specifically addresses this in Matthew chapter 23. Their system was, was unusual in the sense that he says that if you swore by the temple, you were, you were not bound by it. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, you were bound. He says it's about altars. He says, you swore by the altar, you weren't bound. But if you swore by the gift that was placed on the altar, then you were bound. You see, that the whole thing had been sort of turned on its head. Instead of being a solemn decree of truthfulness, the whole oath business had developed into or devolved into an elaborate way of sort of concealing a lie, manipulating outcomes and circumstances. So Jesus in Matthew 5 and then James here as well says, leave that system behind. That is not the way of God. Let's just be a people who are marked instead by truth, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Now, when you think about how simply easy it is to lie. I think there's, there's some cultural practices that some of us can probably relate to that really are just dishonest. How are you doing today? Fine. How often is that true? I know that even asking the question is a lie because they really don't care most of the time, Right? I mean, maybe you can relate to that, or, or maybe this is one that strikes closer to home. It does for me. I'm on my way home. I'll be there in five minutes, knowing that I'm, you know, maybe 20 minutes away, right? Or maybe this one. Oh, I would have loved to come. <laughs> have you ever said that one before? I'll get back to you soon. Mr. Call, I'll get back to you soon. No? Or I'll be praying for you. I mean, we can go on and on and on. I think our... In our culture, in our day and age, there is just sort of one lie after another that many of us have just embraced and we tell on a regular basis. We can certainly relate to the temptation of being dishonest. But here's the deal. God wants his people to be a people who are marked by truth. How unusual is that in our day and age? It's very unusual. It's very unusual. I think the question that most of us, at least I was asking when I read this section, is why? I mean, this is true and right. Why here? 
feels, as you're reading the text, feels random. Just a, a random reminder about the need to tell the truth. But as we've been reading through the letter of James, hopefully you've noticed that I don't think anything that he puts in this letter is random. He's incredibly intentional. He is a careful writer. And another thing is just the default assumption is that the verse must have something. When you're reading the Bible and you come across something that seems random, I think sort of a default assumption should be it must have something to do with either what comes before it or what comes after it. So as you consider why this reminder here, the truth is I believe it's a further application of his call on God's people to be patient. As we wait with patience, that patience is reflected in our speech. I've heard Thomas say this, Pastor Thomas say this a number of times. You can say, hey, this is how I believe, this is what I believe, but what James is telling us is that it's not just by sort of declaring what you believe, but rather it's, let me look at your life and I will tell you what you believe. James is applying this same principle to our speech. See, the the truth is, brothers and sisters, there are few things that can quickly threaten or destroy godly patience like harsh, dishonest speech. There are a few things that can quite destroy it like that. Not sure about the details of why James might be saying this here, but we do know that God's people were caught between Jewish and Gentile persecutions. They were under constant religious, cultural, economic pressure to deny Christ. It may be that this exhortation relates to the potential that they may be facing to go back on their confession of Jesus as Christ. Or maybe the practice of swearing allegiance to others outside of the church. It could be that he's exhorting them to resist either of those temptations. In those instances, the swearing of oaths would be in sort of ease suffering. A way out of persecution and hardships. I think the same could be true for us on maybe different levels. If we face difficulty as we follow Jesus, we will be under constant pressure to manipulate our circumstances and minimize our difficulty simply by saying things that aren't true or by shifting the blame to others. And James says, resist that temptation altogether. He's warning his readers then and us today that a lack of verbal integrity ultimately leads to condemnation. James knows that we're prone to misuse our speech in times of stress, and he wants us to remember the importance of how we use our tongues. For after all, it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Our hearts are to be fully engaged with how the Lord wants us to live when things are easy and when things get tough. So Parkview East. Following Jesus is not always easy. We know this to be true. If you've been following him for a day or more, you know this to be true. And as we persevere 
in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty and adversity, what God wants you for you today is that you persevere with patience. One test of whether or not you're doing this is just by examining your speech. If it's full of complaining, if it's full of grumbling, or if it's full of lies, odds are this is an area that you can grow in. Because after all, real faith produces real patience. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. And um, Lord, I trust that it is a reminder that we all need. We confess this just this morning that, um, Lord, when things get tough as we journey along this road, we are tempted to do whatever it takes to minimize or to reduce that difficulty. Lord, but as we examine your word, what you long for in us, Lord, is hearts that are steady and a faith that is strong and feet that keep marching, Lord, on the path that you've placed us. Lord, I pray that you would help us when things get tough and we're tempted to just abandon ship. Lord, would we be the type of people who please you by patiently enduring. Lord, thank you that what you offer is greater than anything that this world has to offer. Would you increase our confidence that you are the type of God who will do precisely what he says and would you increase our affection so that as we are waiting that you would give us a longing for more and more and more of Jesus. And would that longing produce peace patience in our life. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name.